Hey Conjurers, I'm Sham. And I'm Steph. Okay, so listen, if you're from the Pacific Northwest, you had to have heard about the Hart family. If not, you at least remember the image that went viral of the little boy with the top hat in Portland at a Michael Brown protest. He was giving a police officer a hug while appearing to be extremely emotional. Some have speculated that those tears were beyond what was going on that day. And after I share with you the Hart children's circumstances, you might feel the same. Okay, so this case actually hits close to home for me. Literally, Woodland, Washington is about 20 minutes north of where I live. With that said, it's easy to describe the environment. Woodland is a small suburban city of about 6,000 people. But for such a small town, Woodland has a higher crime rate than 80% of all the other cities in Washington state, especially on the west side of town. The majority of the crimes in Woodland being property crimes, drug-related crimes, or assault. Positioned halfway between two much larger cities, in order to really go to any store other than the local Walmart, you would have to drive to Vancouver, Washington, the next big city south, or Longview, the next big city north. East of I-5 and Woodland consisted of much safer neighborhoods, where most of the homes are on large plots of land. In one of those suburban neighborhoods lived a married couple, Jennifer and Sarah Hart. They had just purchased a three-bedroom split-level home that looked onto their two-acre property. As soon as they moved in, they began renovating the property with horse stalls, garden beds, and a walkout basement. Sarah worked as an assistant manager at Kohl's while Jennifer was a stay-at-home parent who homeschooled their children. They had six foster children, Hannah, Marcus, Jeremiah, Abigail, Devante, and Sierra. Marcus, Abigail, and Hannah were biological siblings, as were Devante, Jeremiah, and Sierra. They were known by friends and family as the Heart Tribe. This was 2018? How in the world did they afford a house on a one salary at Kohl's and a stay-at-home mom? That doesn't add up to me. That house had to be close to $1 million. Additional income was definitely required for it. A lot of people don't realize you get paid a decent amount of money per foster kid. I can already see the writing on the wall with this one. Oh, for sure. And most people knew what the hearts were up to at any given moment. Because Jennifer and Sarah were always on social media, always posting pictures of their well-put-together home, happy children, and blissful marriage. Jennifer was always sharing her family's vegetarian lifestyle with posts of their kids eating veggies. She once posted a photo of Sierra holding a bunch of kale smiling. According to her social media, they kept the kids away from electronic screens, and they could be seen enjoying camping, gardening, reading, and taking care of small animals. In 2013, Jennifer posted, and I quote, Traded in the television for the best big screen available, Planet Earth. The family could be found at local farmer's markets on the weekend, as well as protests. Jennifer and Sarah claimed to be very liberal, always supporting what is right and for the people. They were seen as the perfect couple with the perfect kids. Oh, give me a break. We all do our best to set our kids up for success. But people who brag about what their kids eat and how little screen time they allow are just trying to get attention, and it's most likely bullshit. It's easy to pretend to have a perfect life on social media, even if it's not reality. Listen, as long as your child is happy, fed, and loved, that's all that matters. You're not creating a better human by giving them less screen time. But if that's what you prefer, then sure, do that. Absolutely, but don't use it as a way to act like you're better than other parents. Yeah. 
On Friday, March 23rd, the Hart family packed up and got into their GMC Yukon before making their way from Woodland, Washington and heading south towards California. Jennifer made no Facebook posts about their impromptu road trip. Sarah had been scheduled to work at 6 a.m. on Saturday morning, but texted her co-workers saying, and I quote, I'm sorry, I thought I would be able to go to work, but I'm too sick to come in. The next sight of the family would be on Sunday when Jennifer purchased some groceries from Safeway in Fort Bragg. She paid in cash for bananas, carrots, beef ravioli, white bread, cereal bars, and salting crackers. On Monday the 26th, Sarah's co-workers decided to reach out to police and request a welfare check because it wasn't like her to not only miss work but not respond to their texts. Two hours later, a tourist reported a GMC Yukon crashed upside down on the rocks below a steep 100-foot embankment. It was along Highway 1 in Mendocino County, California. A few hundred yards from the wreckage were the bodies of Marcus, Abigail, and Jeremiah, but Devante, Hannah, and Sierra were missing. The crash occurred on a Monday, just after 3 a.m. A revving car engine, tires crunching on gravel, and mournful cries for help could be heard in the dark of the night according to a camper near the crash site. Two weeks after the crash, Sierra's body washed ashore in the same vicinity of the crash site. Oh my god. I'm guessing since this is a true crime podcast, this wasn't a freak accident while on a happy family road trip. In no way, shape, or form was this an accident. (laughs) What did the autopsy show? After the autopsy was conducted, it appeared that Jennifer and Sarah were intoxicated and the children were drugged, likely sleeping when the crash occurred. Jennifer had a blood alcohol level of 0.102%, which was well over California's limit of 0.08%. A significant amount of diphenhydramine, an active ingredient in Benadryl that can cause drowsiness, were found in Sarah and two of the heart children's systems. According to the vehicle's computer, Jennifer stopped at the embankment and hit the gas, causing the car to fly off the edge. It had also appeared that no seatbelts were on the couple or the children. There were no tire marks left on the ground, causing the investigators to believe this was intentional. They were also able to pull information from Sarah's phone and were able to locate her Google searches right before the crash, which included the following questions. How easily can I overdose on an over-the-counter medication? Can 500 milligrams of Benadryl kill a 125-pound woman? How long does it take to die from hypothermia while drowning in a car? And one of her last searches were for a no-kill dog shelter. What the fuck? She was clearly only worried about her own personal death experience, not the kids they were about to murder. The dog shelter one is weird. It's a little too late to be thinking about a dog shelter, don't you think? (laughs) Those searches would have made more sense if they had been done prior to them making it to the embankment. Totally. There has to be something that led up to this, right? This wasn't a last-minute insane decision. Listen, a few days following the crash, police made their way into the Hart family home to see if they could locate any evidence to explain why the couple would have made the choice not only in their lives, but their children's as well. Upon entering the home, the investigators struggled to figure out where the kids slept. Jennifer and Sarah's room contained one double bed, and the second room contained two foam love seats and a padded mat. Now for the third room, it had one twin bed. They discovered freezers full of meat, tortillas, and bread. The house appeared to be clean, other than a few clothing piles and dirty dishes. They found school supplies, board games, and a small library full of young adult novels. Other than that, there was no indication that children even lived in that home. There weren't family photos displayed throughout the home and no personal items like posters or keepsakes in the bedrooms. 
Even the dinner table wasn't big enough for an entire family of eight. It only consisted of six dining room chairs. The children were malnourished, suggesting that they were starved by their foster mothers despite the fact fresh fruit was seen out on the counter and the fridge was fully stocked. One thing they also took note about of the home was all the unfinished renovations. The house looked like a work in progress as soon as they stepped in. Animal control was called to the home to collect the animals left behind. And during this time, they were still looking for three children. So they searched the property with cadaver dogs, but nothing turned up. Ten months later, on May 9th of 2018, a passerby spotted a partial foot inside of a shoe that was still attached to a pair of jeans near the crash site. Authorities confirmed they identified the partial remains of 16-year-old Hannah Hart. Sadly, Devontae Hart's body was never located and presumably drifted out to sea. Oh, man. That is nothing like the life they presented to the rest of the world. Those poor kids. They never even had a chance with Sarah and Jennifer as their mothers. How did no one know this was their living conditions? How did no one see this coming? What do we know about Sarah and Jennifer's backgrounds? Sarah, formerly known as Sarah Gingler and Jennifer Hart, met at Northern State University in Aberdeen, South Dakota. Jennifer never completed her degree, but Sarah earned hers in special needs education. Even though they were dating at that point, they made sure to hide the relationship from family and friends by purposely referring to each other as friends or roommates. Once they finally came out, according to Jennifer's Facebook post, they moved because the Midwestern mindset was relentlessly unforgiving and unaccepting. Coming out to their friends and family didn't go well, and they were effectively shunned by everyone that was supposed to love them. They decided to move to Alexandria, Minnesota, where they would work together at one of the biggest department stores located in the local mall called Herberger's. Though Sarah was known for being sensitive and having emotional breakdowns while under pressure at work, Jennifer was known to have a bigger and louder personality of the two. She was abrasive, confident, and funny, according to Jordan Smith, who was their co-worker at the time. She was also what one might call a rebel. She was even caught stealing back in college. Jennifer had a reputation for questionable behavior. For example, at her burgers, she complained to coworkers about a mannequin having sexy nipples and took a hacksaw to them to remove them because she was offended. I'm sorry, what? She cut off a mannequin's sexy nipples? This chick was crazy from the start. <laughs> yeah, I've never heard of something like that. And I'm sure she was known as the crazy coworker because there's always one. Oh my god. When and how did they even start taking in foster children? It was in 2014 that Jennifer and Sarah took in their first foster child, whose name I couldn't locate. At the time, she was 15 years old, and the couple was in their mid-20s when they took her in. It took the hearts no time at all to start complaining about the girl, going as far as to tell co-workers that she would pick out food out of the garbage can and eat it. In an interview by the Seattle Times, the then foster child, now in her late 20s, told a reporter that she had never ate food out of the garbage. She told them that she lived with the hearts for about three years, but when she turned 18 years old, they dropped her off at her therapist's office and never returned. Two years later, in 2006, the couple took in three siblings from the Texas foster care system. Seven-year-old Marcus, four-year-old Hannah, and two-year-old Abigail. And it didn't take long for Jennifer to post about her experience to Facebook. The post read, and I quote, Abigail urinated everywhere and gashed her chin, falling down the stairs. Hannah smeared feces on the wall and gorged herself with food until she needed the Heimlich, resulting in an episode of projectile vomiting. Marcus hit his head on the closet wall and in multiple voices claimed to be possessed by demons. 
Sarah and I are committed to healing the kids over time. If not us, then who? End quote. Oh, please, give me a break. They want to present themselves as perfect white saviors to what they want people to think are damaged little black kids. They don't care about any of these kids. They only want the money and attention. It's giving me the same desperation for attention as the people that go on those missions to Africa and need to post about it. They think that they're saving children's lives by teaching them their ABCs, only to leave them to suffer as soon as the trip is over. Yes, exactly. It's sickening. And that was only the first set of siblings. Apparently, they thought that they could take on more, because in the spring of 2008, they took in three more foster kids. Five-year-old Devante and his younger siblings, four-year-old Jeremiah and three-year-old Sierra. They found communities in Washington State that embraced their family. They were seen at transformational festivals and social events that included music, dancing, and dressing up in whimsical costumes. Jennifer became a kind of local celebrity in the community, with her online representation of their family where she racked up those likes. Her status updates wove a year's running narrative, starring herself as the world's most progressive parent. Her friends would prefer to her as the master poster. They presented themselves as inspirational saviors of difficult and disturbed children. Not everyone was fooled by their online presence, though. Some people around them started seeing the true circumstances behind closed doors at the Hart household. Steph will tell us more about these young victims and how this was even allowed to happen. Sierra, Jeremiah, and Devante were born to Clarence and Sherry Davis in Texas. In 2006, Sherry was forced to give up custody of her children due to a cocaine addiction. Her sister Priscilla took the children and raised them while Sherry got back on her feet. Priscilla was a good candidate to keep the children with a clear criminal background and a stable job. However, right before Priscilla planned to adopt them, she allowed Sherry to babysit them while she was working. At that time, Sherry wasn't supposed to have any contact with them, and when the caseworker found out, the children were immediately removed from the family's care. Even though the children's aunt continued to fight for them, they were officially adopted by Jennifer and Sarah in 2009 and relocated to Minnesota. Sherry Davis found out her children's lives were taken two weeks after the murder-suicide took place. Her sister Priscilla received the news from her lawyer before passing it along to her sister. According to an article from theappeal.org, Sherry said, and I quote, If she hadn't found out, I don't think they would have told me. Davis said in April, they haven't told me yet. They haven't called or nothing. That is so messed up. The very first person you should call when a child is hurt is their mother. And they weren't even hurt. They were literally pronounced dead for two weeks. Who in their right mind wouldn't think to call her? They should have never been taken from that family in the first place. The system doesn't care about the birth family, clearly. No, and I'm sure they didn't handle the other children's situation any differently. Of course not. Marcus, Abigail, and Hannah were born to Tammy Shrewrick in Corpus Christi, Texas. Tammy relinquished her rights to all three children in 2004 after being charged with medical neglect. A series of events led to Child Protective Services taking her children. It all started in 2003. While attending a birthday party, Hannah got covered with ant bites, which left untreated led to a staph infection. Doctors had to remove a chunk of skin the size of a quarter from Hannah before providing her with antibiotics. The doctors were required to inform CPS, which caused an official case to be opened for medical neglect against Tammy. At this point, Abigail wasn't born yet, 
and Tammy began feeling helpless, so she made the decision to place her up for adoption. She changed her mind once she settled down with her grandparents in Columbus. Abigail was born in December of 2003, but in February of 2004, Hannah was diagnosed with pneumonia. According to police reports, Tammy waited too long to take Hannah to the hospital, which compounded the medical neglect allegation and the children had to be removed from her care. She was told the kids would be adopted by a couple in the suburbs of Houston, but later found out through CPS they were being adopted out of state. She wouldn't hear anything about her kids again until 12 years later, in October of 2018, when she got a call from her stepmother letting her know the kids were dead. I understand taking children out of unfit homes, but I think they really need to reconsider what unfit means. Most women of color or low-income parents are afraid to take their children to the hospital for this very reason. CPS usually gets involved, and they are fishing for anything to remove a child. That's a great point. We also need to keep in mind that the healthcare system is crap in this country, so oftentimes taking your kids to the hospital means so much debt that you lose your house. So I get why she might wait and see if she could recover without a doctor. The system was stacked against her at every turn. Was the abuse with the heart something that started to happen later in the child's life then? Girl, the first report of abuse of these children began 10 years before that fateful day. While the family was living in Minnesota in 2008, one of six-year-old Hannah's teachers pulled her aside because she noticed bruises on her left arm. When the teacher asked where she had gotten them from, she said her mother, Jennifer, hit her with a belt. After this discovery, Jennifer and Sarah pulled all six children out of public school. The next incident happened in 2010 when Abigail shared with another adult that she had owies on her back and stomach. It turned out that Jennifer and Sarah beat Abigail and held her head under cold water over a penny they claimed that she stole. These claims caused authorities to get involved, and after taking each child's statements, they all shared that they were spanked constantly and deprived of food on a daily basis. Sarah decided to take full responsibility. She was charged with assault and pleaded guilty. Instead of removing the children from their care, she was given community service for one year. That sentencing did nothing, because only one year later in 2011, Hannah shared with a school nurse that she hadn't eaten all day. When the nurse contacted Sarah to see why she claimed Hannah was, and I quote, playing the food card, Sarah told the nurse to just give her water and she would be fine. This was the final incident before the children were once again pulled out of the public school system and officially homeschooled from that point on. The family relocated to Oregon two years later. Community service for one year for harming a child in your care. Then you just let her go back home to them? Why? They didn't put hands on these kids because they were out of control. They put hands on them over a penny and being hungry. Right? That is insane! Regardless of what I think of the bullshit sentence she got, the kids should have been taken away, and Jennifer and Sarah should have never been allowed to foster or adopt again. I can't believe they were even able to relocate. Right? They just picked up and left like it never happened. Once in Westland, Oregon, it didn't take long for the authorities to have Sarah and Jennifer on their radar from the abuse allegations in Minnesota and began investigating. This included interviewing all of the children and anyone who knew Jennifer, Sarah, and the kids. The children were the first to be interviewed, but none of them mentioned what occurred in Minnesota or any abuse happening in the home. 
Interviewing those who knew them gave the authorities new insight into what was going on in the Hart home. Two friends of the family shared that the kids weren't allowed to wish each other happy birthday, laugh at the dinner table, and could only speak if they raised their hands and were given permission. Some reported that the children were small for their age and weren't well fed. There was one instance where a family friend witnessed Jennifer order pizza for the kids, but only allowed them to have a very small slice. Later that evening, she discovered the pizza was gone and punished all of the children by sending them to the room they shared and made them lie down for five hours. It was clear the one the children feared the most was Jennifer. When she was around, the children were practically trained robots. When Jennifer and Sarah were interviewed, they claimed that the only reason people were accusing them of abusing and neglecting the children was because others were prejudiced against two lesbian mothers of six African-American children. In conclusion to all of these interviews, the investigators decided that they were guilty of nothing and left them alone. Girl, no one cares that you two are lesbians and are raising black children. We care because you're trash human beings. What a piece of shit. I'm sorry. This case gets me so fired up. (laughs) Yeah. And once again, they got away with it. Of course they did. Eventually, the Hart family packed up and relocated to Woodland, Washington in May of 2017, where the abuse continued. One night around 1.30 a.m., Hannah, now 15 years old, decided to take a big risk and save her siblings by jumping out her second-story window. She immediately ran to her neighbor's home, the DeCobbs, and told them, and I quote, Don't make me go back. They are racist and they abuse us. It didn't take long for Jennifer to notice she was missing. She gathered the kids and Sarah and headed over to the neighbor's home. Without even asking permission, they walked into the DeCobbs home and went upstairs, which is where they found a balled-up, horrified Hannah. Jennifer had a moment alone with her before coming back downstairs, forcing Hannah to apologize to the couple for waking them up, telling her in front of the DeCobbs, and I quote, tell them you had a really bad day, to which Hannah complied before she was taken back home. The DeCobbs were rightfully shaken up and had plans to call Child Protective Services the next day. That was until 6.30 a.m. when their doorbell rang and they opened it to the entire Hart family standing in a row. Jennifer began to tell them that Hannah was known for lying and all of the foster children they had were drug babies and that's why they acted out occasionally. She even went as far as to say that Hannah's mother was bipolar, hoping to throw out any suspicion they may have about her and Sarah. After the incident with Hannah, they also received a note from Hannah that read, I stopped by this morning because I feel awful about disturbing your peace and worrying you in the middle of the night. I was very frustrated with my brother and didn't handle things very maturely. I'm sorry for telling lies to get attention. I'm working on being more honest and finding better ways to communicate my frustrations. I've been pretty sad about two of our cats dying recently, so I was just very sad and frustrated last night. Thank you for being kind, to which she signed her name at the bottom. Oh, that totally sounds like something a teenager would write. (laughs) I'm sorry, but if a child comes to my door crying because our neighbors are abusing her, she's not leaving my home unless the authorities come and get her. That is what should have happened. It's obvious she was forced to write that if she was even the one to write it at all. Who would believe that? Jennifer's little stunt actually almost worked. That was until the DeCobbs met Devante. Devante, now 15 years old, 
constantly begged them for food and asked them to keep it between them out of fear of retaliation from his foster mothers. Over the course of 10 visits, he shared with them that Jennifer and Sarah were starving them and punishing them for no reason on a daily basis. With Devante and Hannah both ending up on their doorstep on several occasions, this caused enough concern for the DeCobbs to report Jennifer and Sarah to the Washington State Department of Social and Health Services. Social workers made their way to the Hart home on March 26th, 27th, and 28th, but by then it was already too late. Cases like these happen every day. Most are largely ignored. This case only made the news due to the sensational circumstances. Five states were involved in the adoption and abuse allegations of these six innocent children, and all five states are responsible for the hell these children suffered to the very end. These children were ripped away from their loving families when what their parents needed was help, not punishment. Instead, these little innocent ones were shipped off to another state to be abused, neglected, and ignored by all those who were supposed to help them and keep them safe. Mendocino County Sheriff Coroner Thomas Allman shared with a reporter for CNN, quote, Where are the systemic failures that possibly could have prevented this? We do not have a national database for child abuse allegations. This should be an enlightening moment for lawmakers, end quote. But personally, I don't think that is enough. That still puts the responsibility on these young victims to convince someone of the abuse before anyone pays attention. Aside from the fact that Jennifer and Sarah were clearly in this for the money and getting attention on social media, this is another case of the system failing at what they were created to do. In an ideal world, the child will be taken away from the perpetrator and put into a safe environment with a licensed professional who can get them to speak without fearing the consequences that may be waiting for them back home. Sierra, Abigail, Jeremiah, Devante, Hannah, and Marcus had their entire lives ahead of them and deserved to be loved and well taken care of by the adults put in charge of them. They were failed by the system, five different states, and the sorry excuses of the mother Jennifer and Sarah were. We can only hope their story puts pressure on others to say something, even if you suspect a child is being abused or neglected. The American Professional Society on the Abuse of Children, APSAC, is a nonprofit national organization focused on meeting the needs of professionals engaged in all aspects of services for maltreated children and their families. Especially important to them is the dissemination of practice in all professional disciplines related to child abuse and neglect. They offer an expansive array of services for underserved children, families, and adults with developmental disabilities, and provide the resources necessary to rebuild lives and rebuild families. For more information, visit www.apsac.org or call 614-827-1321. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Alina. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Crime and Conjure Podcast for our question of the week. And another place to find us is at Crime and Conjure Podcast on TikTok. Sham, what's our conjure tip this week? We all, if not most of us, would love to save a child from being abused, but we don't know how to exactly spot one or how serious the situation is. Behavioral and symptom clues would be hard to see unless you actually spent time with a child or knew their personality. So today I want to share with you some physical cues from childabuse.stanford.edu. 
These are important to look out for when you're suspecting child abuse, including poor hygiene, dressed inappropriately for the weather, poor weight gain, bruising, and lack of medical care are reasons to show concern. Ones that may take a little bit more focus include traumatic hair loss caused by stress, lacerations, oral injuries, bleeding from private areas, facial injuries, or defensive wounds. If you see any of these signs, please speak up. You may just end up saving a life that still has so much to offer this world. Look, it's more comfortable to pretend that it's rare, but it's not. We all need to keep an eye out for the signs. We'll be back next week with another episode.